Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Lee Show. As always, I'm your host, Lee Bressler. What's up? Nice to be back with all of you. Uh, last weekend, we had this fake news hurricane. I don't, can you say fake news? Is that, is that an acceptable phrase? Is it so, like, it has a, a loaded political meaning now? So I don't know if you can say that. But um, before the hurricane, I was on the Long Island Railroad and everyone on the train car, and this was not like a super sophisticated crowd on the, on the train, everyone on the train car got these alerts on their phone about this hurricane that was coming. And it was like everyone on the train had their phone set to maximum volume playing Candy Crush to begin with. So it was just super loud and really unpleasant. Nobody had control over their phones. And it's so, first of all, it's weird when they send these like weather amber alerts. I, I don't get that. I mean, does it, does it really affect anyone? It just scares the hell out of people. What about those amber alerts? Do those actually do anything? Like what, does anyone ever get found because of amber alerts? Do they help anyone other than the people whose job it is to write amber alerts? Is that a job? Is that like a full-time job? I mean, they come out in the middle of the night sometimes. They disrupt everyone from sleep. You know what people do then? They just disable them. I mean, I disabled them. Like the first time I got one, I was like, this is outrageous. And I disabled it. Ooh, ooh. Pays attention to it. And it, no one's sensitive to it anymore. Like, what's the idea that it's going to whip everyone into action? Like, oh, I, I got an Amber Alert for some nine-year-old girl. I better go jump in the Batmobile. And then imagine what's going to happen. You're going to have some idiot who's like, oh, I saw an Amber Alert for a nine-year-old white girl. I, I, and then he sees one and he starts following her. And he's like, I thought I was helping, but secretly he's, you know, just following some nine-year-old white girl. And then he's going to get get stopped by a cop. And then he's going to get shot. And it's going to be like, no, but I was just trying to help. I was trying to help this girl. And then it's going to turn into a whole different thing because, like, the cop shot some some guy who was following this girl. And he was doing it because of the Amber Alert. And, you know, he wasn't actually carrying a weapon. I, and whatever. The whole thing is going to be a disaster. I can just see it coming. and And I can't imagine that they work like this is not America's most wanted, which I don't even know if that actually works. I can't imagine that these Amber Alerts actually find missing children. I don't know how many missing children there are. That feels like one of those moral panics from the 70s and 80s, like the, the kids on the sides of milk cartons. I don't think that's really a thing anymore. We've moved on to some different moral panic at this point. But they feel like these things are just crime control theater where they create the appearance of crime control, but they don't actually serve any practical benefit to anybody. Anyways, after this hurricane alert, but before the actual fake hurricane, I was on the beach with some friends and I told a story. I, I, I remembered a story that I told them um, something that happened to me about about 12 years ago, I was, um, I was in grad school and I was an intern and the company that I worked for, the, um, the founder was a very wealthy guy and he donated a ton of money to uh, a museum. I think it was the museum of the city of New York, but I could be imagining that. And they threw this black tie dinner to honor him and to thank him for his generosity. And I, I was an intern so like everyone in the company was invited to this dinner, but being the intern, I wasn't important. And I was seated next to the least important 
person there besides me. It was like somebody's accountants, lawyers, janitors, somebody like somebody that nobody else gave a shit about that they like included this guy and then they seated him next to the intern. And I, I can talk to a wall. Like I could I could talk to a rock. I, I don't have a problem carrying a conversation with anyone. Uh sometimes it's just fun to do that and and challenge myself. But this guy was the most boring person that I've ever met in my entire life. So I, I tolerated it for as long as I could. And somewhere after the appetizers, before the entrees, uh, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm like losing my patience for this. And I, um, I decided, what can I do to kill some time? Now, this is like 12 years ago. There wasn't like smartphones. I couldn't you know, it's not like I can go hide in a stairwell and watch a Netflix or something. And I couldn't leave. I had to be there. So I decided I was going to go take a shit. And, and that was the best way to kill some time. So I, um, I go down to the men's room. Uh, remember, this is a museum. So like the men's room has, you know, a bunch of stalls, a bunch of sinks. It's a, it's a big museum men's room. I go down to the men's room. I go into the stall. I take off my tuxedo jacket. I hang it on the little hook. I take off my suspenders, I open my pants, I drop my pants. Now my tuxedo shirt, it, it was almost like a leotard. Like it has this, this strap that hangs down in the back that you pull between your legs and then there's this extra button on the front of the shirt. And so you, you button the back to the front of the shirt and it keeps it really snug and tucked in all the time. And it always looks very taut and very nice. And that's good when you're wearing a black tie, uh, uh, you know, shirt. So. Anyways, I, I unbutton that button and uh, and then take off my uh, my underpants and I sit down on the toilet and I take an enormous shit, like a, a 15 plus minute, really like a monster. And then when I'm done, I stand up and I feel something wet slapping against the back of my thigh. And I look back and I realize that the strap from my tuxedo shirt was dangling in the toilet bowl the entire time. And now it is soaking wet and covered in feces. And it's not only wet, it's that thing where the fabric gets wet, it gets so wet and saturated that the water starts traveling up. So it's like already traveling up to the back of my tuxedo shirt. And I'm sort of panicked because like, what do, what do I do? I'm in this men's room. It's not like I can go to the sink and just like, you know, waddle over to the sink with my pants around my ankles and then squeeze out my shirt and wash it in the sink. I mean, there's other people in the men's room. I have limited resources available to me. So I, um, I take toilet paper and I wrap it around this tail of the shirt as many times as I can until it is as covered as possible. And then I just tuck it into my pants and I pull my pants up and I, I put my jacket back on and I go back to the dinner and I spent the rest of the dinner sitting on this giant, thick, wet lump of fabric and toilet paper, incredibly uncomfortable. Like my, my left leg is sort of raised because I have to make room for this, this lump of fabric. And I'm stuck there for the entire rest of the dinner. I, I left as early as I possibly could. Like once I saw one other person leave, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm done with this. I did a couple episodes of the podcast about Afghanistan 
Uh, I did a, a discussion of our exit from Afghanistan. I did an interview with Private Jordan Tassa. If you haven't listened to both of those, but especially the interview, strongly recommend that you do. Um, fascinating. You know, there's there we can find interviews with all of the military leadership who who have a stake in this, right? They want to defend their decisions. It's fascinating to me to to find a real honest discussion with the folks who were the boots on the ground who can tell their story and their thoughts on the war and uh, and I strongly recommend you listen to it um Jordan is a a fantastic guest and and I really enjoyed speaking with him you know I think my point has been proven right since then I think that our exit from Afghanistan is going pretty well. I think it is clearly the right decision. For starters, Americans aren't dying. And I think that what's happening now is that leaving Afghanistan is popular with the American people. It is unpopular with the national security elites and with their allies in the media. And so now they're pissed. They're pissed because they want us at war forever. And so they are trying to punish President Biden. They're trying to send a message to future presidents not to cross them. And so they've cooked up this narrative of this fake, this middle ground concept that's being espoused. Like, it's good that we're leaving, but we're doing it the wrong way. And I think that is a fake narrative. Because, sure, it would be great if we had an indefinite extension of the deal where the Taliban stays out of Kabul and all the Americans can leave and all of our uh, um, allies can stay there in peace or they can leave if they want. And, uh, and, and Kabul is this happy cosmopolitan place with women in blue jeans. But I think the press has done a good job of obscuring why that isn't possible. Why is it not possible? It's not possible because for 20 years and $2 trillion, we backed these military elites and they got us nothing. They were wrong for 20 years and they lied to us the entire time telling us that what they were doing was working. It was not working. We propped up a corrupt regime and we know that. That's not the first time we've done that, right? Like we, we've we've showered questionable allies with cash. That's a longstanding American practice. But we didn't fail because the Afghan army was weak or because they deserted. We failed because the mission itself was preposterous. We failed because the lion's share of the looting was done by our own domestic contracting industry. When you step back and think about this, a lot of the frenzy in the media about the withdrawal, it stems from the inability to process that a U.S. president actually followed through on his commitment to terminate a failed war. And he is holding fast to that commitment despite a campaign of pushback from Democrats, from Republicans, from the media, from the military brass, from, from charities from the supposed international community. And whatever else you might think of Biden, 
you might think that he is is sleepy and doddering and uh, senile. I don't know what you think of him, but his resolve on this issue is rare. It's impressive and it's rare. And the level of freakout surrounding this, I mean, I guess it makes sense because the media was unprepared for it. And they were unprepared that Biden would actually follow through on it without without getting cowed and, and without apologizing. But that's rare. How often does that happen in politics anymore? And it's impressive. And he's getting blasted on both sides of the aisle by by every manner of idiot out there. On the right, they're saying that he's he's giving in to to foreign interests, that he's weak. On the left, what that they're 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 complaining about Afghan women that they're not going to be able to do yoga, and I mean, why didn't they say a word about this for the last twenty years? Why did no one give a shit about this for twenty years, and suddenly they all care? It's because it's a contrived narrative, and we're getting out, and it's going fine, and they can't handle it. You have this blob of national security types that is pressing now for the use of force to facilitate the evacuation. What does that translate to? They want to extend the war. And then if they're lucky, the Taliban will respond with force. And who knows, maybe they get really lucky and the war starts again. There's this narrative that's going around that we screwed up because we did things in the wrong order or that we didn't have a strategy. The strategy was get the fuck out. Stop prolonging this. The strategy was no more war. And the failure in Afghanistan was mind boggling. Like never in the history of warfare had there been such a resource disparity between the two sides. But yet the U.S. backed government couldn't even last through the end of the American withdrawal. And you can choose to understand this failure through different lenses. And I don't know if this tells us something about every war and all of American foreign policy, or if it's a narrow lesson here about this particular war. Donald Trump has been giving speeches and going on about how we gave up lots of weapons and we didn't get our equipment out. That's nonsense. The whole point of the war was to lose as much equipment as possible so that we would have to buy more, so that we would have to enrich our own domestic military contractors. Here's my controversial take of the day. This idea that we totally fucked over our allies, that these the interpreters who, who helped us, I bet there's a shred of truth to that. Like, I'm sure there are some people there that helped us and are now going to get screwed. I don't think it is nearly as pervasive as the narrative is about it. I think the media is way over indexing to that narrative. I think we can imagine it, we can envision it. And so we are assuming that it is true because it is visceral. But remember that nobody in America gave a shit about Afghanistan for years. Do you know in 2020, CBS News, one of the biggest broadcasters of news in the country, did not mention Afghanistan one single time the entire year. NBC and ABC gave it a combined five minutes of total coverage in the entire year. Nobody cared about the Afghan interpreters then. Now, though, it's an emotional narrative. And I'm sure that the Taliban is going to do some really bad thing. They're going to find some dude. 
They're going to tar and feather him and dunk him in boiling oil and skin him. It's going to be some real medieval shit. Terrible. There will be pictures. It'll be graphic. It'll be hyped as if there are thousands of people getting subjected to this fate. And the media is going to tell you all about it because they want us to go back to war. But don't take one anecdote as a universal sign of something. Don't pay attention to this. Media blackout. Ignore it. It's meant to manipulate you emotionally. Ignore it. It is an abstraction. This, these, these Afghani interpreters, that's going to be like the, the trending phrase of, of 2021. And I get it that there are, are some people who are like, my buddy Ibrahim is over there and he's getting screwed. But I think that for the very vast majority of people, it is an abstraction. And it is a narrative that is being fed to keep us at war. I think special interest corruption is eating our country. Wall Street got bailouts because it is too big to fail. And the military industry made a huge amount from the Afghan war, and now they're trying to keep us there. The education unions won't release their grip on our schools, and they are harming our kids. The amount of regulatory capture in this country is extraordinary. And that brings me to my next topic, the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry. I wrote an essay this week about how the FDA screwed up the decision to approve a new medication called Aduhelm. And I wrote this essay because a, a few weeks ago, I did a piece about how the FDA had screwed up COVID vaccines. And I used that as a metaphor for how weak the FDA was as a whole. And the pushback that I got was, this isn't a strong enough argument. You're using one example to prove the point. And so here, here's another example. So Aduhelm is this new medication. It's made by a company called Biogen, and it's meant to treat Alzheimer's disease. But it doesn't actually treat Alzheimer's disease. What Aduhelm does is it breaks up deposits of a kind of gunk you get in your brain called amyloid beta. And there are a lot of theories about this amyloid beta, and Aduhelm is pretty good at breaking up those deposits. And for years, for years, people have believed that th there's this, this theory that, that amyloid beta causes Alzheimer's. The theory is that these plaque deposits just, you know, there's, there's this gunk in your brain and that's what causes you to have amyloid, it uh, causes you to have Alzheimer's. But we don't actually know if there's any validity to that. In fact, it's very heavily contested. There's a bunch of other hypotheses about this plaque, right? So theory one is that you get this plaque and that causes Alzheimer's. And so the idea is if you break up the plaque deposits, you'll treat the Alzheimer's. What we don't know is once you have Alzheimer's, does it matter if you break up the plaque? Is it too late at that point? We also don't know if it's a symptom rather than a cause, if it's that the other way around, that the Alzheimer's is causing the plaque deposits in your brain, in which case breaking them up may have no therapeutic benefit. There's another theory that there's a virus that you can get earlier in your life that causes both amyloid beta plaque and Alzheimer's, and that they are correlated, but it's not that one causes the other, in which case the most important thing would be treating this virus earlier in life rather than 
focusing on the plaque deposits. There's even a fourth theory that the plaque deposits are actually your body's way of fighting Alzheimer's and that your brain is creating these these deposits and this gunk to try to prevent the Alzheimer's or some other neurodegenerative disease from spreading. And so we don't know what this is doing. We don't know that there's any benefit to it. There are 10 other anti-amyloid drugs that have failed clinical trials in the past. And some of those even succeeded in removing the plaque deposits, but none of them showed any benefit in preventing cognitive decline. So maybe it's time to make the presumption that amyloid beta reduction doesn't matter. I would argue that a, a patient who dies with no amyloid deposits in their brain, but with severe Alzheimer's and cognitive decline, that's not a success. That doesn't help anyone. I don't think that matters. We should only care about cognitive performance. And Biogen had billions of dollars on the line, and they could not devise a cognitive test that found statistically significant evidence of any clinical benefit. So I think it's safe to assume that such a benefit does not exist. Now, let's take a quick detour to understand the history behind this for a second. You see, when you are doing research, it used to be that you could run an experiment and then you'd find some sort of correlation and you'd go, hey, hey, look, this works. But then in the year 2000, the federal government made a rule change. They said, you can't do that anymore. That's called p-hacking. It's a statistical technique where you shoehorn your results to fit the desired outcome. And you can't do that anymore. And so starting in the year 2000, if you want federal funding for your research, you have to say in advance what it is you're looking for, how you're going to measure success. And there's this amazing chart I found that you'll see in my Substack if you pull it up, that shows that between 1974 and the year 2000, when that rule change came into play, there were tons of new drugs that showed a beneficial outcome, tons of them. And then in 2000, this rule comes into effect and there's only two that are released following that showing any beneficial outcome. Almost everything was shown to have no benefit. Now, there's two explanations for this. One is maybe it's just harder to make good medications. Maybe that we made all of the obvious ones. And then in the year 2000, coincidentally, it just became a lot harder. But maybe it's that our statistical methods were flawed and that the old medications don't work either. That all of that research was done by p-hacking, leading to useless results. And that many of the medications on the market are useless, that they would not pass trials given those newer standards today. And so there's a lot of research out there. I found fantastic papers written by medical professors. Here's one from uh, a guy named um, John Ioannidis. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford. And he wrote a paper in which he showed that 50% 
of published research is non-reproducible. If it's non-reproducible, it's junk. It's useless in the medical community. And I found other papers that said it's actually higher. It's 70%, 80%, 90% of the research that pu- that's published is non-reproducible. And I think that Adjuhelm, this new medication, falls into that bucket. Now, it didn't have to conform to those same government standards, but it is an example of flawed research. Biogen ran two identical clinical trials of the drug. And both of them were stopped early because an independent data monitoring committee concluded that the drug did not help patients. Biogen had this 18-point scale to measure cognitive performance. And they found that in one of those trials, there was no benefit. And in the other trial, there was a benefit of 0.39 points on an 18-point scale. It was just irrelevant. The FDA had a panel of independent experts who recommended against approving this drug. Three of those panel members have resigned in protest. And in fact, Janet Woodcock, the acting FDA commissioner, has called for an independent investigation into the approval process. She wants to know where is all the communication between Biogen and the FDA? It deserves a thorough review. You see, much of the argument in favor of Adjuhelm is focused on what's called surrogate endpoints. And that's this kind of reasoning where we say, we want fewer heart attacks. We know cholesterol causes heart attacks. So we made a drug that decreases cholesterol. We did the easy work of making sure it decreases cholesterol, but we haven't done the hard work of making sure it actually prevents heart attacks. And the advantage of this type of reasoning is that it's much easier to check that a drug decreases cholesterol. That might only take a few months to measure than it is to check that it actually decreases heart attacks. That could take years or decades to measure. But of course, the disadvantage should be obvious. The drug might only decrease cholesterol, but have no impact on heart attacks, just as Adjuhelm decreases amyloid beta deposits, but it doesn't have any benefit for Alzheimer's. And in theory, this type of of screw up shouldn't happen because if you're Theory is bulletproof. If you say cholesterol causes heart attacks and that's airtight, then this shouldn't happen. But in practice, this type of reasoning often fails. Maybe it's that cholesterol doesn't cause heart attacks. It's just correlated with them. Maybe there's some other disconnect. Maybe cholesterol, there's two types of it and the drug reduces one type, but it's the other one that causes heart attacks. But if we're only measuring them combined, we won't know it. There's lots of possible flaws here. But this is just another example of how the FDA screwed up and got something wrong. Now, does it matter? Well, in this case, it really does. Adjuhelm is one of the most expensive drugs imaginable. It costs on average $56,000 per year per patient. Think about that. That's a staggering amount. And remember that most Alzheimer's patients are over age 65. They have Medicare, which means the taxpayers are footing the bill for this useless drug. Not only useless, it has severe side effects. Some of the largest health systems in the country, Mount Sinai, the Cleveland Clinic, 
they have said they refuse to administer it because it's worthless. Now, let's put that price tag in context for a second. There are 6 million people about in the U.S. who have Alzheimer's. Let's say a third of them get prescribed this drug. 2 million people. At this price tag, that's $100 billion a year. Medicare spends a total of $127 billion a year on pharmaceuticals. So you're talking about nearly doubling what Medicare spends on drugs every year. Let's put it this way. There are about a million doctors in the U.S. Let's say the average doctor makes $200,000 a year. That's $200 billion in total. In other words, Adjuhome is going to cost as much as half of the doctors in the country combined for no benefit. Is that worth it? Can someone stop this madness? Now, aside from what appears to be incompetence and corruption at the FDA, and that chapter of the story remains to be written, I think this is a good example of why the FDA needs to be reformed. It's an argument for unbundling the FDA, right? Because the FDA is deciding two things right now. Number one is safety. Is a new drug safe? The second thing they're deciding is efficacy. They're putting their stamp of approval on a drug for being effective. Now, the safety part I get. Let's make sure this isn't going to kill people. The efficacy part is what I think should be taken away from the FDA. My alternative model of the FDA is that they have no say on efficacy. And here's why this works. Because the FDA, once they approve something to treat a certain condition, doctors are allowed to prescribe it to treat any other condition. This off-label use. Hey, this drug has been shown to be effective at treating depression, but we're going to use it to treat cancer. Once it gets approved to treat one thing, it can be used to treat anything without the FDA having given their stamp of approval on effectiveness. That's based on doctors making decisions based on the research that they've read. And so why do we need the FDA to decide effectiveness in the first place? I think the FDA should stick to its original mission of assuring a drug's safety. Leave the decisions about efficacy to the people who use and prescribe these drugs. Now, what's the counter argument to this? The counter argument is that in this efficacy not required regime that everything just becomes the dietary supplements industry, which is kind of a mess. And so if you drop the efficacy requirement, then you're going to have some guys like, I developed apple juice that treats AIDS, not just plain apple juice, apple juice tablets. And by the way, they're $10,000. How does it work? I don't know, bioflavonoids or antioxidants or free radicals, probably, who knows? It's safe. I mean, it's just apple juice. And no one is testing those claims. You can't prove I'm wrong, can you? But of course, here's the counter argument to that. The counter argument is you have a free market. And so if something is effective, if there's research to support it, people are going to want to buy it. They're going to want to buy it at whatever price you're charging for it. And if it's ineffective, they're not going to want to buy it. And it's not the FDA's stamp of efficacy that makes the difference there. I think the FDA's approval of Adjuhome is a flawed decision from a flawed agency. It's time to reform it. This decision 
has the potential to cost the U.S. taxpayers $100 billion a year while providing no discernible benefit. And Biogen has conducted the type of p-hacking and flawed research that the biomedical industry has perpetuated for years. It is time to reform the FDA. Thank you for listening. As always, I'm Lee Bressler. You can find me on Instagram at The Lee Show Podcast. Find me on Twitter. Find my writing on Substack. I'm all over the place. The best thing you can do is show your support, a paid subscription. The second best thing you could do is share this. Word of mouth is key. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers. They can find me however they want to find me. And of course, you know, the third best thing you could do is just text or email, send me a compliment so that I can hype myself and, you know, talk about how people love listening to this. Thanks again. Thanks again.